0: I want to start this morning by drawing your attention to one of the, the insert in your bulletin and just encourage it to give it a few minutes. I know it's easy to, to dismiss those. On one side is the information about Christians in Libya and what they face. And what we do at East Glenville is every month we have a different country where we're praying for the believers who are under fire in, in those areas. So I just ask you to add Libya, the Christians in Libya, to your prayer list. But on the other side is the story of Muriel Davis. She's one of the missionaries who this church has supported for many years. And I'll be honest, I, I didn't read much of this before this morning. And I'm like, they did what? Whoa. Like, And they were in the whole mix of things in Central Africa and and in their, their life. And it's just worth taking five minutes to read their story. So I exhort you in that, and it relates to how I want to start today, is I want to talk about another guy long ago who served the Lord. His name was Brother Andrew, and he's actually uh, Dutch, and I don't even want to try to say his last name. Something like Vander Vanderbilt. So everyone just called him Brother Andrew. Has anyone ever heard of him before? Okay, sprinkling of you. So he, he was kind of well-known more in the past. He, he died this year, and, and so I saw an article, and it kind of reminded me. But he was known as God's Bible smuggler. And in the, the communist world, they did not want people to have Bibles. And so they, it was kind of the forbidden book. And so he would, he started an effort to start smuggling Bibles into the communist-controlled countries, and he talked about, and one time he had a bunch of Bibles hidden in his little Volkswagen, and he was coming up to a border checkpoint, and, and he's like, oh man, they're going to find these, they're going to find these, what's going to happen, you know, you know. He didn't know how they would react. And so he says, Lord, you know, when you were on earth, you opened the eyes of the blind. Now I want you to blind the eyes of the seeing so they do not see what's in my vehicle. And it worked. And he he said they never actually got caught at a border crossing in his time. There was a Dutch joke. He he, he smuggled millions of Bibles into the communist world. And so there was a Dutch joke. It says, what will the Russians find if they arrive first at the moon? Brother Andrew with a load of Bibles. So why is this worth such effort, worth risking your life for? Why were people so hungry that they they wanted what he could he could get because they had no access to it? And and we believe that the story that we hear in here, that it's not just a story fictional, it's a story that happened. That God has spoken through this and given this way to know what he's like. And that's why we, we talk about this as being God's word. If you ever went to a class or really even studying in college, you might have studied something, and you, you learn some things in a classroom. But then your real education begins when you actually start doing it. I, I wonder if the, uh, the engineers or nurses in the house are like, where did you learn more, from listening to lectures or from sitting side by side with someone and say, how do you actually do this? You know, how does this actually happen? Well, God is the, the expert teacher. And what you see as you read the Bible is not just things we learn in a classroom, that God came alongside humanity. And we have the the recorded account of God interacting with people through periods of centuries. So God is going to teach humanity about himself by coming alongside of us and interacting with us. That's what we're looking at in this, this series. And I want want to help you see the Bible really in a whole different way, not as just a mere rule book, which is sometimes how people approach the Bible, well, what, what rules do I have to follow? There, there, are, there are things to, to learn in here, but, but that you would see it as a story of God teaching himself to humanity, and we're a part of that story.
1: Last week,
0: I made kind of the closing point being that humanity had lost all knowledge of God, of God Almighty. And by the end of Genesis 11, humanity had evolved into idol worship. They worshipped all these other gods, the Marduk and Zeus and Baal. and, And they didn't really know who the most high God was. And God had to reintroduce himself to humanity. And God chose Abraham and his descendants as the one through whom he would introduce himself, reintroduce himself to mankind. And that, that by Abraham and his family, God would bring about salvation, but also where we're going to look more at the end is redemption. Redemption and salvation that would extend ultimately to all peoples.
1: So that's where we're at
0: now. God made a choice, and that is he made a choice of Abraham, and God made a covenant with Abraham. And so that's what we see in the first passage that Rachel read. God says, "I will make a covenant with you, in order that through you I might bless all peoples." The rest of the Bible story is is rest of the Bible is God dealing with just Abraham and his t- descendants
1: as it goes down. And in fact,
0: He doesn't really reach out beyond the, the descendants of Abraham until you get to the, the, the Gospel Acts. Then it starts, the message starts to go out to the Greeks and the Romans and to all the other people, including us Americans. But the first, there's three things I want you to see as you go through Genesis, as we go through Genesis. And the first one is this God makes covenants. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he makes covenants and reaffirms that covenant throughout the scripture. So if you're reading along with us in this, That's what I want you to look for, is is when it starts to talk about a covenant. So a covenant is different than a contract. We're We're used to contracts. In a contract, you you make a deal. You do this, and I'll do that. You supply this, and I'll supply that. And that's a little different than a covenant. A covenant is a promise to be in relation to another person for all your days. So, so the, the really, the only, only example of a covenant, covenant relationship that, that we might have is marriage. And in a marriage, it's not just well, I'll move on if you do the dishes. dishes. I mean, there's some, some of that negotiation that, negotiation that takes place in most marriages. Um, but, but it's more than that. that. It's, it's saying for better, for worse, for, worse, worse, for, for richer, for, for poorer, no, no matter how, how tough, tough it gets, we're in it. this together. That's the picture of a covenant. Of a covenant. And, and that's, that's what God, God makes with Abraham and on on, on to his, his descendants. descendants. And God chooses to relate to people through these covenants. It says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. So Abraham, so, Abraham had already shown himself willing to trust God when he left his homeland to go to this new land. And so, through them, God would bless the descendants of Abraham and make him exceedingly fruitful. And then he would make Abraham into a father of many nations. Talk about rulers and kings will come from you. And then, then this covenant would then extend to his descendants, and then they would inherit what's known as the the promised land. land. It's It's the the land of Canaan. And eventually that's that's the land we now know as the land of Israel, which is the descendants of Abraham. And then God would watch over, would take care of the future descendants, the future generations, so that this will be an everlasting covenant. So that's what God will do. What will Abraham do? He says, walk before me and be blameless. The implication the is this, that he would learn God's way of doing things. He'd learn about God, and he'd, he'd, he'd put those his ways, God's ways, into his life. God makes covenants. In my youth ministry days, I used to talk a lot about how we, we need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that and I still hold that. But, but I've, I've switched how I say it. A personal relationship, relationship means, well, you just, you just can't rely on the fact, fact that your parents are Christians or, or that you, you, know, you show up at church. church. You're, You're meant, meant to know God personally. And, and that's still, still true. And, and so there's teenagers, teenagers in the house, house still, we, still we still want you want to hear that. hear that. right? You, you do, you do need, need to know God in that personal, God, personal, in that personal sense. sense. But, but I, I've, I've switched, switched now how I say it. it. And now I say there's a personal aspect to our relationship with God. But... The Bible speaks about, about a covenant, covenant relationship. We are in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So, actually, so think, think about it this way.
1: This Personal relationships change all the
0: time. time. They're, they're impermanent, right? They, look, how, how many of you, of you think you, think you, you had, had a best friend in your life, life at one, one point, point and, and now you guys aren't? Are, you, you may say, say you're you're not friends, friends, or you're just, they're just distant, they're far away. You barely talk to them anymore. Relationships, relationships change, change personal, personal relationships, relationships. But, but a, a covenant, covenant relationship is, is different. That's, that's what God has invited us into. It, it, it says that when anyone puts their, their faith in, in Jesus, Jesus, it says, it says they, 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 they give, give the, right the right to become sons and daughters of God, children of God. And that's a that's a relationship that's an everlasting relationship. And the, the interesting thing, God, the one thing it keeps emphasizing over and over again through all the scriptures, is God is faithful to covenants. There's a word in Hebrew called hesed. I know I didn't say that right, but it's hesed. Um, It's often translated steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It can also be translated covenant faithfulness. It means that God does not give up on us, even when we fall short of him. Isaiah 54, it says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love, Chesed, shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So God makes covenants and he keeps them. The second thing I want you to see is God picks unexpected people for his own purposes. He's starts with Abraham. He picks Abraham and Sarah, this old couple who have no kids, never had kids, and says, yeah, I'm going to give you so many descendants you won't be able to count them. Like, that's not expected. Uh, later he picks a, an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And and she sa- he says, trust me and I will bless you. I will make sure you're okay one of Abraham's descendants, Jacob. We're going to talk a little bit about him at, at one point. Um, God picks him. He's, he's, he's not the older brother. He's actually the younger brother. And, and he's conniving, lying, deceptive. And yet God chooses him to carry on that covenant relationship. One of the things that you'll notice is that Abraham and the descendants are not righteous men and women. They are not moral stand, standard bearers. I think that confuses people sometimes. You think, well, wouldn't God pick good people who do good things? And then you read what they do and like, what? Like, these are not necessarily moral standard bearers in all that they do. God picks unexpected people and then begins to work with them, shape them over time. Sometimes God allows them to face the consequences of He keeps calling them to more, but the people he chooses don't always live up to that calling. The third thing I want you to see, and it's related, is God, God calls these unexpected people, but then he keeps showing up at crucial moments of their lives. In fact, God appears to Jacob, that conniving, lying little brother, four times in his life. The first time, it's when he's He's almost fleeing his family because he tricked his, his older brother. He, he deceived his father. And now he's going away from everyone he's known, and he's going to be completely on his own, at least it seems to him. And at that moment, as he doesn't know what life's going to hold for him, God shows up to Jacob in a vision. Maybe you've heard it, it's called the famous Stairway to Heaven vision. And God lets Jacob see the heavens. And his presence. And then he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, the land that he was in the process of leaving. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. God makes covenants and he keeps them. And then Jacob awoke from his his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. Jacob, this this one who probably didn't pay much attention during his Sunday school lessons, suddenly now has encountered God for himself. See, what God is doing is he's affirming that covenant, because Jacob is the grandson of of Abraham. And so God not only made that covenant, he's he's confirming that covenant that will continue on. The rest of Genesis follows the family of Abraham down to his grandsons and great-grandsons. And it ends with Abraham's family moving to Egypt. A great famine is in the land, and God saves them by sending them to Egypt that they might have food to eat. And in fact, Joseph, the great-grandson, becomes kind of the prime minister, and he invites his family, and they become the shepherds of Egypt. And they're welcomed into there. Genesis ends with that. And then we move to Exodus. The covenant of God does not end with Genesis. It continues on. But there's a long pause. So Exodus, the word means in Greek, the road out. So in Genesis, they go into Egypt. Exodus will be about them going out of Egypt. And what happens in Exodus is God redeems the descendants of Abraham out of slavery and claims them for his own. And so I have a list of key events that takes place. And I'm going to briefly go through the story uh, that that you might know. But I just am curious to ask, has anyone seen any movies about the Exodus story? Is, can I? Has anyone not seen at least one movie? So so if you've seen a, a movie about Moses and the Exodus, raise your hand. Okay, we got 95% of you. Uh, so there's the classic, right? Uh, what's it called? The Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. Yeah, that one's that one's one of the, the really good. Um, there's a newer one, not newer, 1998, uh, that's a cartoon one. So maybe you with parents, this would actually, if you've not shown your kids this, it's a great movie it's called The Prince of Egypt. I think Spielberg made it. And it has good music, so it's a bonus. But it's actually a really good telling of the story. I'm sure there's others, but I, don't, I heard one out there that wasn't so great. So anyways, there, you could watch the movie, or I think they're going to have a class on that um, over in Sunday school. But let me hit the key events. And I know you probably know this if you've seen it, but the first thing that happens is the Hebrews are enslaved and oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So they're slaves in Egypt. So there's a long gap between Genesis and Exodus. And kind of doing the math, at one time it says 430 years, but that's from when they leave Egypt. There's an 80-year in between. So Exodus is about 350 years afterwards. So the Israelites have grown numerous and, you know, into a people. They're no longer just a tribe or uh, one family. Now they are uh, 12 tribes and one people group. When they went in, they were valued as the shepherds of Egypt. Now they have become oppressed slaves. In archaeology, they've learned that there was a particular time in Egypt's history where an outside rulership came into Egypt. They're called the Hyksos. And they have some records of it. They don't know all the details. But basically what happened is during a weak point in the Egypt dynasty, the Pharaoh dynasty of pharaohs, and out, The Semitic peoples came in, and they were, in a sense, the pharaohs of Egypt for a couple hundred years. And then later, the, the Egyptians, you know, the populace rose up, threw them off, and the, a new pharaoh dynasty was established. What seems to have taken place is that the, the people of Israel, Joseph and family, came into Egypt during that Hyksos period, documented in archaeology, when they would have been open to Semitic peoples joining in in Egypt. And then when the natural-born Egyptian dynasty, that dynasty reasserted itself, they didn't like so much all these Semitic peoples, and the Hebrews are Semites, so that's when they probably went from being valued shepherds to being oppressed slaves. So that's the first event is that they become slaves. Then Moses, who grew up in the courts courtroom of Pharaoh, would would have learned Egyptian, but he was actually Hebrew in his ancestry, he ends up as a shepherd and God comes and appears to, to Moses in the burning bush. The Lord chooses Moses as his representative and in that conversation, you know, Moses says, you know, what shall I call you? God had introduced himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that covenant relationship. But then Moses says, yeah, but, but what do I call you? What, what's your name? And then God does something new. He reveals to Moses his divine name. He says, I am that I am and that is the divine name of God and in hebrew it's yahweh and so that becomes later what we sometimes just say the lord in the bible it's that that divine name you see god is beginning to teach who his nature is to his people so the lord appears to moses reveals the divine name and then he sends moses back to egypt and and in order to lead the the people out of slavery in Egypt, so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, "What does he say? Let my people go." We all know that part. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, "Not on my watch, all right? I, how, who are you? You, you shepherd from nowhere to talk to me? I am the son of Ra, you know, the the son of the sun god in Egypt. You know, I, I you, you can't tell me what to do." And of course, it becomes then a battle of wills. And God can be convincing. And so God's way of convincing Pharaoh to let them go was to send plagues. To convince the Egyptians to set free the slaves. So maybe you've heard of the the plagues of Egypt. Uh, The waters turned to blood. You got frogs. You got gnats or lice. You got flies. You got diseases on livestock. You got boils on your skin. uh, Hail. Big, really big hail, locusts, darkness, and then those are the first nine. And then the tenth plague is the, the death of the firstborn children. So, the tenth one's a little different. But out of the first nine, what's the worst? Like if you had to pick one, like I, anything but that. What, what would what would out of those nine you would say definitely not that one? I heard fleas. What? Uh, yeah, because then then there's no beef. No McDonald's. No livestock. No McDonald's. What, what what do you think would be the worst? Water to blood? Yeah. That would be tough. Because I think they had wells that they could go and dig and get. So they were not like, die of thirst. Otherwise, everyone would just die. But it would have been a lot of work. I, don't, I think I'd go with boils. Diseases on your skin that's itchy all the time. and I don't know. Though flies are horrible. None of them would be great. But out of those first nine, the Egyptians are still not convinced. Pharaoh's stubbornness remains, and he will not let the people go. And so the tenth plague is brutal. And God seems reticent to send it, but it is necessary. And while the other plagues, Pharaoh himself probably had other people to go get him water or whatever to keep away the flies, the 10th plague fell upon Pharaoh's household himself. And it's the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Who here is a firstborn? Who here would be gone? Me too, right? Us, us, us firstborns who are in charge of everything who, you know, are responsible, unlike those younger younger siblings who, uh, but so the firstborn sons, that would be, that'd be brutal. And the thing is, if God is sending the angel of death to do this plague, the angel of death is not going to make a distinction between people of different ethnicities. And so the fall upon the Hebrews just as it does the Egyptians and so God has to give a way to protect his people and so then he gives the mechanism of of a way to be saved and that is they would offer a lamb, a Passover lamb and so they'd take a, a pure lamb that they had in their flocks and they would sac- sacrifice that ritually and then they would Burn the parts that are supposed to be burned, but you'd actually eat the meat. And so you would gather as a family inside your house, and you would eat the lamb together. But before you did that, you would take the blood from the lamb and put it over your doorpost. And so you'd be in your house on this this fateful night. Your family gathered together. Certainly you'd be praying, because you would have been forewarned what God is doing. And when the angel of death, that was coming for the firstborn sons saw the blood on the door, it would pass over that house. And so that became known as the Passover Lamb. And if you look on your calendars, I bet you'll still find a holiday in March or April called Passover. The Jews continue to celebrate that particular holiday. But so God provided a way of salvation For his people through the judgment. It is then that Pharaoh lets the people go. In fact, insists they leave in his grief. But then his grief turns to anger and he sends an army to destroy them all. And the army pursues the Hebrews all the way to the Red Sea. And God does one more incredible act of power by which he will save his people. He sends a mighty wind to create a path through the Red Sea so they could walk on dry ground. And so on one side is death by the army of the Egyptians, but they walk from death to life on the other side through the waters. They pass through the waters from death to life. When they get to the other side, God leads them through Moses to Mount Sinai. By the way, on my answer key, I put it wrong. I put Mount Zion. I get a little confused sometimes. Mount Sinai in the Arabian Peninsula. And it is there, as God had said to Moses, "When this will be the sign. When, when you've done all this, you'll come to this mountain and you will worship me here. Will they worship and God then establishes his covenant with the people of Israel. Not only are they saved, they are redeemed to redeem is to buy out of. If you redeem something, you purchase it. You, you buy it out of uh, so that it's yours. God had purchased them by these great acts of power on the, their behalf. So they belong to God. He, he says that over and over again. You are my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He, he talks about having the right to say, you need to become as me. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore be holy as I am holy. And so in this covenant relationship, they are supposed to, they're called to reflect God and His presence in their life. He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. You shall be all um my treasure possession among all peoples. Think about this. God chose as his people not not the great warriors of the ancient world. You know, nor did he choose choose the exceptional engineers who, you know, who were great at building projects. He didn't choose the most mighty people or the most numerous people. He didn't choose the great philosophers or scholars of history, you know, the Greeks or any of that. He he didn't choose the people with all the poets and musicians. He chose a group of oppressed slaves to be his people. What does that say about God? You shall be my treasure possession among all peoples. And and to them he would reveal himself by walking with them through their history, through hundreds of history hundred years of history, yet. He would speak to them amidst the conflicts and wars they face. He would, he would guide and lead them. And ultimately, through them, he would send his one and only son, the Messiah they had been waiting for. And, and that Messiah would then work redemption, not just for the Israelites, but for all peoples and all languages. That was God's grand plan. And it, it was the, the road back home starting to begin with this, the story in Exodus. The story of Exodus has so many parallels that point ahead to God's ultimate plan of salvation. And so what I want to say is this isn't just history. It's not just events that happened long ago. It, it's that, but it, it's so much more. I want you to see yourself in the story. So let's think about this. Pharaoh had enslaved the, and oppressed the Israelites. In that way, we have been slaves to sin and the burden of death. We were, we are still, people are still oppressed by that fear of death in their life. The Lord, and just as the Lord appears to Moses and reveals his deny, divine name, God, Jesus, came in our midst, and we see the, the, the truth about who God is, and he reveals to us the, the divine name of the Savior that at the name of Jesus is the name of power. And as God had sent Moses to to lead lead them out of Egypt and he had faced uh, opposition, so when Jesus came, he faced the opposition, Opposition, demonic opposition as the the unclean spirits rebelled against him, and and also the opposition of the religious leaders of his time. And just as Moses or uh, God sent the plagues to convince people. So Jesus did these great acts of power, miracles of healing. He says, How do we know you're the Messiah? How do we know you're the one? He says, the, the blind can see and the lame are healed. Right? Look at what I've done. These great acts of, of healing are the convincing thing that Jesus truly was the Messiah. Uh, just as the, the key event of the Exodus story is the death of the firstborn sons. So the key event of our salvation is the death of God's one and only Son as God had sent Him to to accomplish our salvation. And as the Hebrew sons were saved through the offering of a Passover lamb, so it is said of Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's by the blood, and of his blood, that we are saved. We are covered. And so we can pass through the judgment of God and be saved. And so as the Israelites went from death to life as they passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so we pass from death to life in the waters of baptism. And we then are received in salvation. And so, as they made a covenant at Mount Sinai, we, the followers of Jesus, have a covenant on Mount Zion, the, the mountain where Jesus gave his life for us. And so we now are in a covenant relationship with God. All of these things, the way God works salvation for his people back then, was pointing to the head to the salvation we would have through Jesus Christ. And it says to them, You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Now we can know that we are sons and daughters of God. Behold, with great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. We can't just see this as another history lesson. This story is something we're invited into as we receive it, as we trust in it. As Brother Andrew thought it was worth risking his life to bring the story, Bibles, to people in closed countries, we have the story that we can hear and know and and know that we're included in it. I believe it's life-changing when we are convinced that this story is us, that we have been redeemed, that we are his. I want you to just meditate on this last verse, this last verse to share as, as we close. The idea of redemption is that we have been bought by God, bought out of the slavery to sin and death. Then hear this. It says, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. As you go from this place, meditate on what that means. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that the salvation we read about in the centuries ago is not just some history lesson, but it's something that applies in our life even today. May we know and understand what you've done to claim us as your own. May we see ourselves as your your children, your sons and daughters. May we know that our lives are yours because we've given them to you as we've put our trust in your son. May we live our lives in light of that fact. May we wake up each morning knowing I am not my own. I belong body and soul to my Savior and Lord. And I want to live my life for him and for no other. Pray these things in Jesus' name.